Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Back about 18 months ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert for Spirit in Action. And we had a deep visit about his place in creation and that of his tribe, the Lanai Lenape people, and about their lessons of right relationship with the earth. Sadly, he died about six months after my interview with him, before the release of the book written entirely in his words, The Original People, The Ancient Culture and Wisdom of the Lanai Lenape People. The co-author and main person responsible for pulling together the book is Greg Vizi, and Greg's wonderful nature photography and pictures of Chief Quiet Thunder fill the book visually to provide readers with a powerful and moving glimpse of an earth-rooted life and a hopeful vision of a way to heal our connection to the life and the planet around us. Before we talk to Greg Vizi, I wanted to share just a little taste of last year's visit with the Chief. Here he is, back in April 2020. I'm hoping that the things that I talk about will dispel that hopelessness that some people have. I don't believe the Creator is going to let man destroy creation. We did damage, there's no doubt about that. But I can't see something as great as this natural world that the Creator has created, I can't imagine the Creator letting man destroy that. That is but 30 seconds from the 55-minute interview with Chief Quiet Thunder. Right now we go to Greg Vizi in New Jersey, co-author of The Original People. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, Mark, thank you for the opportunity to be on this beautiful platform that you've created. It's been 15 years, I understand. 16 and a half now. I'm getting old. 16 and a half. And who knows the positive ripples that have gone out into the world that you have really created and enabled people to speak their truth, and their wisdom. So again, I appreciate that. I want to acknowledge that I'm of European descent. I have no Indian blood, although I've always admired the Indians, the Native Americans, and their culture, and that I'm living right now in Sweetwater, New Jersey, which was originally part of the traditional homelands of the Lenai Lenape people, which is called Lenai Lenape Hokink. This is a cultural statement that's becoming more and more in place at the beginning of any conversation about Native Americans is that to mention them and honor the place that they originated from. Yeah, and likewise, I'm sitting in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which originally, well, there were several tribes, both the tribes that we know as the Sioux had the influence control here. Ojibwa people, who we normally think of as to the north of us, but they held sway, uh, and they claimed this land and lived here, connected with the land. So that's where I live. As you said, Greg, you are not yourself Native American, but 
you connected somewhere along the way with Chief Richard Quiet Thunder Gilbert. You connected with him along the way somewhere. How did that happen? And how did this part of your mission, I, I think he had a mission on the earth that he was living out and that you connected with that. Well, he definitely had a mission. And uh, like I said, I, I admired the Indians. I was inducted into the Order of the Arrow in the Boy Scouts and always had a longing to meet a Native American, but never had the opportunity until a uh, Columbus Day Festival, which took place at the Rancocas Indian Reservation outside of Mount Holly, New Jersey. And when I was growing up, I used to find artifacts, arrowheads, broken pottery, evidence of the original people that lived here, and often wondered what was their life like and what happened to them, because there was never a mention. And all of a sudden, here were Indians in New Jersey. So I had to go see. The chief had set up a cultural program along a wooded area, and he had dozens of crafts and artifacts that he had put together on display, colorful painted shields, clan shields, drums, even a uh, wooden canoe, dugout canoe him and his brother had constructed. So he was speaking in front of a small group of people, and that's the first time I had contact with him. And many of the things he said answered some of my original questions of how the people lived. And I was extremely surprised to find out that he grew up in Woodbury, New Jersey, right next to Westville, where I grew up in my early years. So that was my first contact with him. What year was that? That was in late 80s. And I think this was probably one of the first cultural programs that he started doing, reaching out to the general public. So the book that you just released last year was The Original People, The Ancient Culture and Wisdom of the Lanai Lenape People by Chief Quiet Thunder and Greg VZ. And there's one other person who deserves to be recognized in this, as Marsha Adams. Could you talk about the genesis of the book? Absolutely. I give Marsha a lot of credit for initiating this project. It's not something I would have done because I never saw myself as an author or writer. That was something I thought was way beyond me. And she is a historian that is affiliated with a museum down in Delaware who had heard the chief's programs and became very interested in writing a book. It was the second attempt at writing a book about the chief, but she had set the tone for the book that it would be in his words and that it would be in small digestible sections, which I continued with, but she had to be pulled to other obligations and could not continue the book. But she had to, you know, I give her credit for putting together a decent beginning as I found out later, it's not easy to interview someone and put it together, transcribe it for the written word, which is different from the spoken word. And so how long was this book in Genesis, maybe from the time that you got it from Marsha? Quite a number of years. You know, I didn't work on it steadily. There were times I had to put it down and pick up other projects. It was a long evolution, let's say, I would say at least 10 years, possibly longer. You know, in the beginning, I, I didn't feel that there really was enough information for a book. But I started out as an ebook. I published an ebook version of it. 
And then uh, I decided to go deeper into it and publish the manuscript. And the chief thought it was important to have pictures, photographs in it. So the book is 300 pages long, uh, and it's got 150 photographs and illustrations. And I should say at this point, who I am, I'm a uh, first a nature photographer, author, permaculture consultant, and naturalist. And a naturalist is someone who studies nature and interprets the natural world. So my particular interest is the indigenous cultures and how people, indigenous cultures, relate it to the natural world. What strategies did they have that enabled them to harmonize with that world? I'm a big supporter of things like permaculture and the kinds of things that I think you've been oriented towards, Greg. But I'm wondering what the difference is between Chief Quiet Thunder's connection to the land and your connection to the land. How do you see a naturalist versus an indigenous person's connection to the land? Well, for me, it's a personal thing uh, because there are many kinds of naturalists. People that study insects or people that study the wildlife, animals, botanists, they're all naturalists. My connection to the land began similar to the chief with his wanderings. I wandered the landscape. Back then in the late 50s, we were, (laughs) my mother would disagree, but we were given pretty much free reign to wander anywhere we wanted to, as long as we were back in time for dinner and didn't get in trouble. (laughs) So while other kids were out playing baseball and football, I was out wandering around uh, along the streams in the forests and the fields. Uh, That was a world I was very comfortable in and very curious about. So I think most kids start out that way. They have a curiosity. They feel an attraction to the natural world. So my life was interrupted by the necessities of being in the uh, dominant society. I had to go to school. I had to go into the military. But when I came back out, I took a course in college uh, called Environmental Issues, and I became aware of the destruction of our environment. And I think what I'm leading to is, is I, I kind of align myself in a similar fashion to the chief in a sense that I felt a sacred obligation to protect Mother Earth. I felt called to do whatever it was I can do to protect the environment because I realize that the natural world is our life support. All life comes from there and goes back to it. It is, if you will, our main infrastructure that supports our life. So the chief and I shared that obligation, that feeling that we have to learn to harmonize and teach others how to harmonize. And when I met the chief, I thought, here's someone that embodies that and embodies his culture. So I felt it was very important that his story should be told, which is why I picked up the book and continued with it. I'm still not quite sure, Greg, that I've caught the difference between your naturalist bent, your connection to the earth, your reverence for the earth, I believe, and that of Chief Quiet Thunder. What's the key difference between the two? Because he's indigenous, he's from indigenous roots, Is his connection to the earth different than your connection to the earth? Well, I'm not quite sure if 
I know the answer to that, but I'll attempt it. I think one thing I observed is that his orientation was towards the past. And I think he lived in the past in, in his imagination in order to understand his oral history. And by the way, this book is an oral history of his tribe and his tribe being his family unit, his family group. And he explained to me, he made it very clear that even though the tribes had similar cultures, every tribe had its own separate differences in the way they performed the ceremonies and when they performed them. So his oral history comes directly from his family. And I think he spent a lot of time trying to understand their way of life based on that oral history. Now, the difference between him and I is my orientation is towards the future. I try to figure out what we can do to sort of move the rudder on this ship of state to have a better future than the direction it's going. And I keep coming back to the indigenous culture. And of course, as you know, permaculture takes a lot of the methods from the indigenous cultures of the world. These are people who understood how to harmonize with nature and they interacted with nature. They didn't say, okay, this is us and there's nature. You can't touch nature. You can't mess with it. They understood how to interact with it without disturbing the balance. Does that help a little bit? That's in the direction, but then that leads me also to when I talked to Chief Quiet Thunder about a year and a half ago, he announced that there was going to be a book coming out soon called The Seventh Generation, which is a, a future orientation, right? What are the things that we do right now? How are they going to affect the seventh generation tense? So I had the feeling that he was looking towards the future. He announces his purpose in your capturing his words in this book. Why did he want this story to be told? Uh, well, in his introduction, he believed that by sharing his culture, he can help others understand that these people, his Lenape people, were very intelligent and had a special relationship with the land. And to try to diffuse a lot of the myths and false images that people have of, of Native Americans in general due to Hollywood and, you know, history written by the colonials. Of course, his explanation of the seventh generation, I mean, that's really what it's all about. We have to think of our future children in everything that we do. The reason he focused on the seventh generation, you have to realize that I spent months on the book, oftentimes without having any contact with him. I don't think he could relate to the computer work that was involved in putting the book together. When I spoke to him on the phone, oftentimes it wasn't business. It was what was going on with his family, what was going on with the tribe, his challenges with some of his programs. He was asked to do some church programs and all. And a lot of times I had difficulty getting him back to the book, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't want to bear hard on him and, and put pressure, you know, because of the respect I had for him, the approach I took was just to let the conversation roll. And consequently, you know, some subjects were touched upon in different recordings. So it was like a jigsaw puzzle that had to be assembled without seeing the whole picture. So if I 
was to do it again, I'd do it differently. But I don't think he had that picture in his mind that there were two versions. We can talk about the two versions. Again, the seventh generation was the original targeted name of the book that he was speaking of last year. And this is called The Original People, the Ancient Culture and Wisdom of Lanai Lenape People. And it's titled by Chief Quiet Thunder and Greg Vesey, as told to Marsha Adams and Greg. So there's a few people collaborating in here. So this book is The Original People. How is this different than The Seventh Generation, which was the assumed target that he spoke to me about? It's different in the sense that a lot of the adult material that's not appropriate for the target audience was left out of this version. I had in mind with this version to start with the target audience of, say, elementary school or middle school age kids, all the way up to adult, to take out a lot of the adult material dealing with racism, dealing with politics, dealing with archaeology, and a lot of the things that, frankly, elementary school kids wouldn't be interested in anyway. And I had in mind to create textbook for the schools, and I still would love to have this go into the school systems as a textbook. And of course, it was designed also to include the culture that would be interesting to adults also. So I tried to include the major message of the chief to get his message out through this book, targeting a young audience, beginning with the young audience, all the way up to adults. So it's more of a cultural book, but it also has the message that the chief is trying to get across to the kids and to the world in general. So the seventh generation, assuming that book comes to fruition, will include a larger component of what we might call adult facts, more of the nitty-gritty science, that archaeology and so on that you mentioned, in addition to the very strong flavor of Chief Quiet Thunder that comes through this book. So would would that book go beyond his words? Not beyond his words. It would include more of his words, some of the racism he encountered growing up in school. There are some very harsh experiences he had. Even though he says, I wouldn't change my childhood, he had some pretty traumatic experiences growing up in the modern society. Experiences in the workforce, and in both books, there's a lot of humor that the chief has. He, was, he really had a sense of humor, a good sense of humor. And in a lot of his presentations, he would say humorous things. And him and I on the phone, we spent, <laughs> we spent hours on the phone and we exchanged jokes and he <laughs> loved to laugh. You know, I could get him laughing in a laughing spree. Uh, <laughs> We had a lot of fun in our discussions. So he, there was that side of them. And there's some funny stories in the book, both books. But getting back to the seventh generation, you know, his military experience, his work experience, and some of the things that he encountered, some of the negative things of life, the myth of federal recognition, a lot of myths that uh, he wanted to displace, politics tribal politics, things that aren't touched on in this book. So things that I feel really should be told and things that the tribe should understand, don't do these things, you know, this has happened in the past, and so on and so forth. One interesting parts of the story was 
the fact that a lot of Lenape people never left this area. And you won't find any accounts of Lenape people in the history books written by the dominant society, uh, written by the colonists, because they didn't want to leave. Many of them didn't leave. A lot of them were sheltered by the Quakers, who allowed them to live on their farms. But they had to really not display their culture, not speak their language. They lost their culture, basically, in order to stay here. Because back then, after Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act, you could get in very hot water by being an Indian here. You could either got killed or your land taken away from your, your homestead, which happened. So they hid under the radar. They were sheltered by the Quakers. And part of what happened was when they did the first census, they only had two categories, white or colored. And in the Lenape culture, in the Indian culture, they call this the second death. They were wiped off the records basically by the census, by being categorized as colored. Colored implied black. And back then, there was a belief that if you have one drop of black blood, then you're black. So a lot of them sheltered in the black communities because they had no other way of finding a mate. This is explained in this adult version, the seventh generation. So these are the kind of issues that I took out the original version. You took them out, but are they going to go back in? Should we be sitting on the edge of our seats waiting for the seventh generation book to be published? I don't know, to be honest. I'd like to publish it, but I have many other things I have to do in my life, and I'm not getting younger. Really? Huh. Different than all the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) I may never lose my youth. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even though we we think we're going to be young forever, you never know when the body's going to sit down and fail. Absolutely. Especially in these times. Well, and for that reason, I feel all the more fortunate. Ruth Ann Purchase contacted me because I'm friends with her son, Simon. That's how I ended up doing the interview with Chief Gilbert, Chief Quiet Thunder, last year, just a year and a half ago, and something like six months later, he died. So I was very fortunate to get it. I mean, he was 86, so it's maybe not a surprise. We don't expect people to live to 120 But we never know when the moment is, and so I'm so glad that we're getting these words down now, Greg. Again, folks, we're speaking with Greg Vesey. He is co-author, author along with Chief Quiet Thunder of the book, The Original People, The Ancient Culture and Wisdom of the Lanai Lenape People. And there's also an important role that Marsha Adams had in this book. So I want to attribute everyone, and I want to recognize the culture that brought up Greg Vesey that helped connect him to the land. A very important part of this book, and you mentioned it, but I want to highlight it right now, Greg, is the pictures, the photography. It's rich with photography. You could just sit and look through this book and just look at the pictures and your soul will be uplifted. This has been your profession for much of your adult life? Uh, More of a passion. I never made any money with it. I'm I'm a compulsive shutterbug. (laughs) That's, I think, one of the early ways that I connected with nature was through photography. It's still one of my main passions, but I appreciate your kind comments on the photographs. Uh, These are some of my best nature photographs that have gone into the book. And I just was fortunate that I had enough to illustrate the book with and enough 
photos of the chief doing uh, some of his programs. So I had a lot to work with. And uh, Chief Quiet Thunder told me he'd like to have a lot of photos in the book. So I think they do help people. Sort of they're, they're attractive and helps you to keep reading and, and moving on to see what's next. Uh, and I just would like to add that the book is written in small bites. So I tell people, you know, a good place to read it is keep it in your bathroom because <laughs> the smallest sections are a couple of paragraphs and the longest sections are no more than a few pages, a couple of pages. So it's easy to read. I think you're saying keep it in the bathroom because it's easy to digest. That is <laughs> maybe I, I like puns. What can I say? <laughs> There's a, something that you've mentioned a few times along the way that I'd like to follow up. I was a Boy Scout also. I did not get into the Order of the Arrow. I wasn't involved long enough to do that. And when I was at camp and they did the tapping out ceremony for Order of the Arrow, I was very intrigued, but I never made it there myself. I went on to other things in my life. You also mentioned that you served time in the military and Chief Quiet Thunder did also. I have to admit, because I am Quaker, that I have mixed feelings about military, not necessarily about the military people, but the military itself and its objectives and its direction. I mean, the military was used against Native Americans quite often in our history of this country, amongst other things. So I'm not sure what my question for you is, Greg, but I think it has to do with your feeling about the military Chief Quiet Thunder's feeling about the military and how that connects with the Native way. Because I think he makes a point of the fact that very high status goes to the person who is a warrior. I think there's different kinds of warriors. So let me just dump that in your lap and you share maybe what you know from him, from yourself, or from the general Native culture. Okay, i like to read from the book then. Uh, reading from... Chapter 2, page 45, okay, concerning concept of warrior. And you have to realize that the Lenape people were peaceful people, and they lived in peace, a peaceful existence for well over 8,000 years, which is completely remarkable in, in all of human history. So, page 45 of the book, it's called Training for Braves. We refer to our young men as braves. We strove to train them to be strong physically as well as mentally. They were never called warriors because we were a peaceful people. Though they were able to defend themselves if need be, war was not a threat. So it goes on to talk about many activities they had to toughen a young man's body. But the point being, war was not a threat to them. And so to segue that into, say, my military experience... In the industrial society that we live in, war is inevitable because it's a system that is based on scarcity and fear of running out of resources. Fear breeds war when you really boil it down. So I, in my life at the time, I was in high school and graduated from high school. This was uh, the time when the Vietnam War was winding up and uh, they were taking everybody that was my age in the draft. I was going to be drafted, basically. I had, in my life's plan, the military had no place for me. 
But because we're indoctrinated to believe that we have to serve our country, I accepted it that either I was going to get drafted or I was going to try to at least avoid being shot at by signing up for the Navy, which I did. But being in the military was never in uh, my life's plan, so to speak. It was the farthest thing from my mind, but I ended. that's where I ended up. So in trying to avoid the Vietnam War, I was sent there anyway. <laughs> oh, well, the way it goes. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is you mentioned the chief. Now, the chief was in the Korean War. He was in the Air Force. And a lot of the time he spent, he was... <laughs> He didn't go along with the program most of the time, and he ended up being punished by being sent out to these isolated assignments. <laughs> Which was a reward for him, right? <laughs> Which was exactly where he fit in. <laughs> like, for instance, uh, one was in um, Arizona, and he was in a uh, position of keeping track of the food stores and in the storehouse, working in the storehouse. And when he was done... He would head out into the desert <laughs> and he would explore the desert in Japan because he uh, went to town and didn't come back for several days. They said, all right, we're going to fix him. We'll send him out to the bomb dump where they had all the bombs stored. So he was out there interacting with the Japanese who he got along very well with because they were basically down to earth people. So he was out on the Sea of Japan surfing and, you know, catching fish, catching crabs and having barbecues and drinking wine with the Japanese. So he was having a grand old time. And when they came to check on him, he would just start moping around like he was miserable. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he made lemonade out of the lemons. So there are a lot of funny stories like that. So you make do with what you got. Folks, we are speaking with Greg VC. He is the author, co-author of The Original People, The Ancient Culture and Wisdom of the Lanai Lenape People. This is Spirit in Action, our website, northernspiritradio.org, where you find a place to post comments on this program. You can donate to support us because we are funded by listeners, not by government or corporations. Do make sure when you come, you follow a link to get a hold of Greg and his work, go to natures-wisdom.com, natures-wisdom.com. Of course, the links on northernspiritradio.org, along with all the links to all of our guests from the past 16 and a half years. A lot of wonderful folks doing world healing that I've talked to over these past decades so please come and explore all of those programs and remember especially to support your local community radio stations. Local news, local connection, relationship is where it's all about. So your local community radio station provides you something none of the other news organizations can. Please support them. Make sure that they thrive and continue. Again, Greg is here and there's a number of things I want to talk about in the book. Uh, one thing that I, maybe I should have done right up front, Greg, is to ask you to talk about where the Lenape people live. Where is their homeland? They occupy the entire state of New Jersey, northern Delaware, eastern Pennsylvania, southern New York, all the way up into western Connecticut. It was a vast area. They were the first 
to come back into the area after the Ice Age ended 10,000 years ago. So it's my speculation that once the land came back to support life with diversity, it could have been a thousand years after the ice sheet melted. I don't know how long it took, but they were the first group that came in and reached the ocean from either where they were living in the south or southwest. They were the first to reach the Atlantic Ocean. And as the tribe expanded, family groups moved north into New England. They became the the Algonquin-speaking woodland Indians, eastern woodland Indians. But the Lenai Lenape means original people. And if you ask the Algonquin-speaking peoples who the grandfather tribe was, they would say the Lenai Lenape Indians. So they occupied these lands, like I said, for thousands of years in peace. They had a peaceful existence without destroying their natural resources, which I think is an amazing story that nobody knows, hardly anybody knows. And I think this is one of the reasons we have to get this book out and spread the word that how did they do it? And that's one of the main themes of the book. And in the chief's wisdom, again, that the book is written in his words. People have told me reading the book is just like having the chief sitting right next to them, speaking directly to them. And that's how it was designed to be. But the wisdom that's in the book is told in very simple and entertaining stories, giving good examples of how things happen. In chapter two, page 42, there's a very simple explanation of uh, an issue that has evolved into a situation that we have today that's really out of hand. He talks about European contact and some of the ramifications. He says, as far back as my oral history goes, prior to European contact, my people did not fight a war. We were a peaceful people. We made no weapons of war. If we were attacked, the hunting bow would become a weapon. The fish spear would become a weapon. The stone knife or hatchet would become a weapon. We never really made weapons of war. That didn't enter into it. But then he talks about trade with the Europeans and how they really got the first trade items from the Europeans, the uh, metal hatchets and eventually guns. So there was another very serious situation in the chief's words that came from that European contact, and it even continues today. Europeans traded for beaver pelts and the Lenape received the gun. Then as they developed that trade and were getting guns and gunpowder, those tribes from the interior who did not have guns became alarmed. Here is a neighbor who has a gun and they don't. So it started an arms race that has come right up to present day. Only today, it's no longer just tribe against tribe. This arms race includes the whole world. It went from bow and arrows with stone tips to muskets with lead shot to a button that could blow up a continent. So that's what I mean by the simplicity with which he gets down to the meat of things, the heart of the matter. A simple example of Now, today, we have ICBMs that are sitting in silos that could be accidentally triggered and destroy all of us. And a lot of politicians don't even realize that. So we have a serious situation that started with a simple trade item, a gun, and has expanded exponentially to the situation that we're in right now. 
And that's one example. Here's another example. Well, there's a, there's a lot of things I'd like to talk about and <laughs> not a whole lot of time here, but I like to emphasize that they had a way of life that was so simple and they were surrounded by such abundance. Their religion and their teachings helped them to keep that abundance and remain in, in harmony with their surroundings and with each other. And one example would be in travel from one harvest location to the other. And I'll just speak off the top of my head here about this. The Lenape people, they followed the harvest from season to season. They didn't have a calendar. Nature informed them when it was time to harvest the fish migrations in the, along the Delaware River. From there, they went back to their permanent villages in the forests to plant their gardens. And from there, they traveled to the seashore to harvest the shellfish and harvest the wampum seashells, clamshells. And I, I like to say that, uh, and the chief never said this, but I realized one day that they are actually the first people that vacationed at the shore, <laughs> now, which is a long tradition here in um, New Jersey, you know, especially with Philadelphians traveling to the seashore to vacation. But in their travels, and this is a little insight into the book, the chief explained how they would go from one village to their next destination on their way to the shore. And there's a, uh, a map in the book. It's called Highways and Byways. And he talks about how the original trails were made by the eastern woodland elk. And the Lenape people followed these elk behind them, and they that became Indian trails, which became highways. So that's the origin, uh, origin of a lot of the uh, highways in South Jersey, such as uh, Route 49 and Route 9. But anyway, getting back to his description of their journey from their temporary fishing villages and camps along the Delaware River to the seashore, which is quite a distance. You know, it'd take us an hour to drive by car. So I decided to Google map it, these locations. And I mentioned to him, you know, I said, from this location to that location is 30 miles. He says, well, no, you don't understand. He says, you've got to realize that when they traveled, they walked at a relaxed pace. And when they came to a village, they stayed with friends and relatives. They could stay for several days, you know. And so I had in, in my mind that they were traveling 30 miles in one day. And that that's quite a haul, you know, especially carrying their belongings. So that just goes to show you how relaxed and unpressured their lifestyle was. They didn't have to go back after two weeks down the shore like we do. They didn't have a 40-hour work week. They stayed at the shore all summer and had a good time down there. I'm sure they did a lot of swimming in the surf and they did their fishing. They processed the food. They dried the fish. And then they returned back to their villages in the fall to harvest the fur-bearing animals, the vegetables that they planted in their gardens, and so on and so forth. So it's hard for us to imagine a lifestyle that relaxed and that unpressured. And to me, that's a successful society. And that's something that's so far removed and shows the difference in our cultures. Yeah. One of the keys to that is that the chief brings out the importance of the vital role of women. Women had equal say, equal political power in their society. Well, chapter four 
page 125, The Vital Role of Women. It talks about how the women played a major role in the selection of the tribal chief. And they had the clan leaders, the women had their clan, which was a, I guess you would call it a political pact today. They had a lot of say in the life of the Napi society. The chief said that, and, and I quote him, now there are some real spiritual things involved here. The creator gave the obligation to reproduce to the female of all species, be it animal, human, plant, bird, fish, or insect. To bring forth new life is an awesome sacred responsibility. Without the women or the female, all life ceases. So from the creator's position of putting the woman in this category, we understand that she is a very special person. This is the most important person because only she can bring forth new life. So after she brings forth new life, it is the female who does the instructing for all those early years. So women were not only powerful, they were highly revered, almost held sacred. So, and then he says, the clan mothers played a big role in selecting our chief. The other part of, I think, why women really contributed to the success of their society and the, the longevity of it is that he says, women did not want to send their sons to war. So they tried to keep things peaceful. The clan mothers selected the peace chiefs. The key to resolving disputes between tribes was the influence of the clan mothers and their peace chiefs. However you word it, it's crucial because it shows the drastic difference between modern society and traditional Lenape culture. Hopefully, modern people can relate to our traditional way of life. So you've got the situation today where you've got half the world's population is being oppressed, suppressed, and you know, worse. They don't get equal pay. They don't get equal respect. And that's starting to change. But, you know, when you look at the situation we're in right now, it's a man's world it's created by men. We live in an industrial society. I'm going to get on my soapbox here. So stop me if I get out of hand. But, you know, we live in an industrial society, which was created by powerful men, the industrialists. And they've created an artificial world that is separate from the natural world, that separates us artificially. When you get right down to basics, we are a part of the natural world. And that world has been pushed to the side and is treated like a storehouse of resources to be extracted and mined at all costs. The Lenape people did not have Walmart to get their supplies. They didn't have big box stores. They didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have hospitals. Everything they needed, they had to get from the natural world. So naturally, they put protection on that world, and they understood it intimately as a part of themselves. So I think part of the big problem we have today is that separation and the lack of understanding that we are a part of this world, and this natural world is our supportive infrastructure. So whatever we do to this web of life, we do to ourselves, which is a quote from Chief Seattle. There's another quote that Chief Quiet Thunder, he's quoting, I think it's coming from the Ojibwe people, that all my relations, uh, in the same way that Christians, even Jewish people, you know, finish with amen or amen, that native people, 
all our relations, all my relations. And he says that the phrase they use from that comes from the Ojibwe people. I was thinking that all of Native Americans had some phrase for it in their own language. What do you know about that? It's such an important concept. It really is. It's not actually stated in the original people. All my relations refers to all of life in creation. If you think about it, it makes sense. And this took me quite a while to wrap my mind around this concept of Mother Earth. If we all come from the Earth as our mother and element, you know, it's, it's an elemental concept. Basically, our bodies are made out of the Earth. The food that we eat comes from the Earth. Our bodies are an accumulation of the Earth. So in that sense, we are born of the Earth. Everything that is born of the earth must be related. So everything that is related is our brothers and sisters, our relations. That includes the birds, the insects, the animals, the fish, as well as our human brothers and sisters. So that's my understanding of the concept. They're including all of life in their relations. And they're very clear about that. And that, I think, is across the board with all traditional Indian people. I may have gotten that reference from Edgar Villanueva, who I interviewed recently. He's from the Lumbee tribe, so that would be south of the Lenape people. But it's such a widespread concept in the Native American community, and fortunately, some of us get our ideas from that. But actually, that one of the problems I end up having with it, very clearly, Chief Quiet Thunder had this really strong connection to the animals, plants, the land itself, all of that. I've been a vegetarian since 1976 because I look at animals and I say all my relations and I don't eat my relations. You know, <laughs> that's kind of how it goes. So I, I I am at least aware that unlike the mainstream society in the U.S. where we consume food just as an object, that there's much more of a connection with the plants and animals that on part of many indigenous people, or certainly traditionally there was. Yeah, he talks about the hunter praying to the spirit of the animal that he's going to take. He said to take a life is an awesome responsibility. and to acknowledge to the creator that you are responsible for that life. You are taking that life out of the cycle, the natural cycle. They honor that animal by using every part of the animal. And there's a part, a section which takes almost the whole page in the book, listing all of the parts of the white-tailed deer that were used, everything that was produced from different parts of the white-tailed deer. To, not to just honor that animal, but to show to the creator, that they are responsible for taking that life. And to have a ceremony at the end of the harvest season, honoring the spirits of the animals that they took so that the deer will not leave the area. They had a very close relationship with the animals. And oftentimes, they would scout out the animal that they would take that season. They would know it intimately, know its habits, know where, where it would be at certain times of the day. And when it came time to take that animal, they knew exactly what they were harvesting. So they did have a relationship with it. They did honor it. 
and he describes it in the book in several places. But they would leave an offering, either tobacco or corn, where that animal was taken. Anytime they would come across that area, they would say another prayer. So they took a responsibility for taking that life. And I don't know if, I mean, that's, I think, a part of their culture. Eating meat was a big part of their culture and a big part of Native American culture. And a big part of my culture growing up, certainly. My dad was, he was blown away when I became vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't believe it. Well, I was vegetarian for a while, too. I think it's a better lifestyle choice. If you can get the nutrition you need, the protein and everything, I think a lot of people have different reasons for becoming vegetarian, you know. A lot of it's an animal rights choice or it's a health choice, but it's not something that is easy to accomplish because we just don't know that much about nutrition. And that's not one of the topics that's discussed in the original people, the ancient culture and wisdom of the Lanai Lenape people and co-written. It's Greg Vesey edited and put it together. It's got all his photographs in it. And also it's the words entirely of Chief Quiet Thunder and with help from Marsha Adams, who started the original collection of the information that goes into this book. Again, Greg Vesey's website is natures-wisdom.com. Any questions how to spell that, come to northernspiritradio.org. Let's finish with just a few more words, Greg, before we end this edition of Spirit in Action. What is the final message if Richard were here, if Chief Quiet Thunder were here, what would be his final words that he'd want to leave us with? If you don't mind, I'd like to add my words along with that. The chief thought that the biggest challenge he had and we have is changing the mindset that people have that they are superior to nature. He would always say, how can you be superior to something that without it, you don't exist? And he also, I mean, talk, in talking about how we have a choice, whereas everything else follows the original instructions, which is how to harmonize with nature. Because we have a choice, we can make the wrong choice. And when we make the wrong choices, our thinking becomes unbalanced. And he talks about this in uh, chapter six, a spiritual way of life. Uh, when our thinking becomes imbalanced because we have such an influence on the natural world, that we cause the natural world to go out of balance, which the Lenape people were very careful not to do because of the wisdom that was given to them by their elders through their religion and their beliefs. In the beginning of many adult programs he gave, he would hold up his personal arrow and he would explain, and this is in the book, my arrow has the red, green, and yellow, which indicates it's a Lenape arrow. But it also has my personal colors, which is white, black, yellow, and red, which indicates the four races living side by side, as I believe the Creator has meant us to live. So he's giving us a message, which is the same message many religious prophets and leaders, such as Jesus, gives us. Treat everyone as your brother and sister. And I think this addresses 
world healing, which is your purpose and goal, part of your purpose and goal for your broadcasts, I think that we have to look at each other and not allow us to be separated, to be inclusive, not allow us to repel each other because the other person is a Democrat or a Republican or has been vaccinated or has been unvaccinated. These are things that separate people. We have to come together as people to help heal each other before we can hope to heal the earth. And I'll just say that as my parting statement. And folks, again, the book, The Original People, hopefully Greg Vesey will be producing an additional volume called The Seventh Generation with expanded material over what's included in this book. His website, natures wisdom.com links on nordenspiritradio.org. Greg, thank you so much for pursuing this. I was sad when I heard that Chief Quiet Thunder had passed in November of 2020. I'd only talked to him in April of 2020, so it hadn't been that long, and there's no idea that was on the horizon. I'm so thankful that you didn't let his testimony drop the inspiration that he is for the world. I'm thankful for you, for you living your own life. With your camera, you've captured so much of the beauty of the world. And by putting it with his words, I think you've done a great service to the world. And I thank you so much for doing that and joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Mark. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you capturing the Chief's words along with Ruthann. It was just very fortunate because... Like he said, he did pass soon after. And I think that's the best recording of his words that I've heard. And I told Ruth Ann, I said, kudos to you, Ruth Ann, because you did in about an hour what's taken me years to do (laughs) (laughs) to get into a book. It's teamwork. And thanks for being part of the team, part of all my relations, and for bringing us the original people. Thanks so much again. Thank you, Mark. Again, folks, links on NordenSpiritRadio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.